This morning we'll be continuing in the book of John, so I would encourage you to open up the scriptures there to the book of John. We'll be in chapter 14. We've been in this series for a while, and we're still going to be in it for a while. That's okay. We want to just devote ourselves to this book and to see who Jesus is and what he desires for us. So we're going to be, as I said, in John 14, starting in verse 15. So please follow along with me as I read the word, starting in verse 15, chapter 14, the Gospel of John. It says this, and this is Jesus speaking throughout this passage, except for one brief moment where Judas speaks. It says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. That is through your word, through your spirit, the person of Jesus, your son. We know that you are under no obligation to do so, but freely, by your grace and in your love, you initiated toward us in relationship. Your word is a result of that. So we thank you for it. Lord, your word is truth. We pray that today that you would sanctify us, your people, in your truth. 
you would help us understand more of who you are, how you desire to dwell with us and in us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I had never been so glad to be home, I think, in my entire life. The previous 24 hours had been spent at Russian Extreme Camp. Extreme Camp was the brainchild of my good friend, my good Russian friend, Yura, who was on staff with Athletes in Action, a sports ministry. It was his idea for us to put on a camp, this extreme camp, for exuberant Russian college students. The camp consisted of little, if any, sleep, a push-up, sit-up, and squat competition between teams that involved hundreds, probably thousands of repetitions, and then other games all throughout the night. So there was all that, not to mention that Russian camp food um, is nothing to write home about most of the time. You're likely to get hot dogs and spaghetti noodles for breakfast, fish soup for lunch, and maybe cow tongue for dinner. All those things are actually meals that I had at Russian camps, which is not, I mean, I ate it. I eat pretty much anything, whatever's put in front of me, but it wasn't exactly appetizing. So most everything at the camp I dealt with okay, since I like sports and being active, but the lack of sleep and physical exhaustion coupled with trying to interact and communicate in a different language and culture made it pretty difficult by the end of the time there. I was ready to be home. Our humble apartment on Militiava Street in Yekaterinburg was nothing spectacular at all, but man, was I ever glad to burst through the doors, offload my stuff, get something tasty to eat, not have to engage with Russian language or culture for a bit, and rest. Ah, I was home. While there probably aren't many of you here that can identify with the experience of being at Russian extreme camp, we can all likely identify with the feelings of peace, rest, and security that come with being home after an eventful or arduous trip. So home, take a minute to consider what effect the word has upon you. My desire to be home after Russian extreme camp was mostly about peace and rest. But home also has much to do with the people that we share home with. As you think about home, what emotions does it bring about? What thoughts arise? I'm going to give you a few seconds just to think about home. I'm sure that in a room this size, there are a wide range of associations, thoughts, and emotions. Some of us have a specific place in mind. Others have moved so much between houses or communities that it's really hard to have an association with any one place. Some of us have mostly positive feelings because our homes have been characterized by love, intimacy, trust, peace, joy, stability, companionship, fidelity. Some of us have had experiences of home that have been marked by brokenness, loneliness, infidelity, instability, neglect, strife, and possibly even abuse. And if you have encountered some of these things in the worst sort of ways, I pray that the Word of God and His Spirit brings you abundant hope and healing today and always. For most of us, our experience of home is between these two extremes. But no matter what our experience of home has been, all human hearts can identify with the longing for home. 
We all have within us this innate longing for peace, intimacy, trust, stability, and joy. Ecclesiastes 4.23 says, God has put eternity in man's heart. Because of this, I think there is a human longing that we, that we share for all things to be right as they were in the garden before sin. This longing is greatly accentuated in the life of the believer as we are called sojourners and exiles throughout Scripture. But this is part of God's good design because a longing for God's kingdom causes us to work and to strive toward it. The context of our passage today is shaped by Jesus' statement in John 14, 1, where he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. He says this to a group of disciples who had given up everything to follow him. As they gave up everything and followed him, their homes, in many senses, became a person rather than a place. Jesus had become their home. He provided their security, stability, joy, love, intimacy, and peace because Jesus, God himself, was with them. In verse 2 of chapter 14, he told them that he will go and prepare a place for them. This perhaps brought some relief to their hearts, but it was likely minimal. As great as it was that he was preparing a place for them, he would be away from them, and they were still going to be faced with life's challenges, struggles, suffering. As Jesus would no longer be physically present with them, they longed for God's presence to remain with them. So as we look at the entire passage that we read Verse 23 will be a key verse for us, where Jesus answered them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. To know that he is preparing a place for us should bring us comfort. But how much greater are we likely comforted by knowing that he makes his home in us here and now? So Jesus is not only preparing a future home for us, but he is making his home in us now through the Holy Spirit. The things that Jesus had been saying about going away from them were beginning to click. The Pharisees' animosity toward Jesus had reached its tipping point. At the end of chapter 13, Judas had left the the disciples to betray Jesus. For so long, Jesus had said, My time has not yet come, but now the gears were in motion, and the disciples could sense it. The section of scripture is known as Jesus' farewell discourse. He is preparing them for when he will no longer be with them. Like the disciples, we are people with troubled hearts. The disciples were blessed and changed by God's presence with them in Christ. We too long for God's presence with us for our true home to be restored. Our true home that we were meant for, that eternity that was put into our hearts, is unbroken and unhindered fellowship with God. And this was rightly taken away from us, and we long for its restoration. At creation, before sin entered the world, God was fully present with Adam and Eve in the garden. Since we were made in God's image, for unhindered relationship and fellowship with God, man was fully, completely home in God before the fall. 
But our true home was wrecked by our infidelity to God, our Creator. Now we long for home. We long for restoration. And this restoration to home is possible. In our passage today, the the big idea that we will see is that because God desires to make His home in us now through the Holy Spirit, we must believe God and we must love and obey God. So first, God making a home in us now requires believing God. If we go back up to chapter 14, verse 1, right after Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Up until this point, their believing, the disciples' believing, had been seeing. Soon, if they will continue in faith, after Jesus has gone away, their belief will have to go beyond a moment-by-moment physical seeing of Jesus. So Jesus tells them, basically, if your hearts will not be troubled, you must believe and have assurance that accompanies belief. So belief has this close association with truth. We desire for what we believe to match what is actually true. If not, there is the lack of integrity and consistency within our being that should make us uncomfortable. And any rational person who finds out something they have believed is not true will likely change their beliefs to match what is true. In verse 17, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because the world neither sees him nor knows him. Further down in verse 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So among many other characteristics and roles, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth who teaches us and brings to remembrance what God has said. As he teaches us and brings to remembrance, we believe and we grow in belief. Since God is true, he is incapable of lying, the Spirit of God makes a home in us by helping us understand truth, to embrace it deeply and live according to it. In verse 6, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. After Jesus, the truth, ascended to the Father, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is given to his followers. As Jesus makes his home within us, The foundation for that home is belief, but belief is needed for much more than just the home's foundation. Belief is needed for every part of the home, for the framing, you could say, the plumbing, electrical, insulation, siding, roofing, all of it. Belief is not only for initial saving faith, but we are preserved in belief by the power of God for our final salvation. Shortly after I became born again, I remember having some apprehension over my faith. I knew at that point it was real and vital, but I questioned, like, what if it does not remain? And the Lord ministered to me through a particular verse, uh, 1 Peter 1.5, actually, which says this. It says, who, and it's referring in this passage to those that God has caused to be born again. So it says, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. As believers, our faith is being guarded and sustained by God's power. This was a tremendous reassurance for me. 
he worked to initiate faith in us, if we have faith, and continues to work to guard, sustain, and preserve that faith. So as we believe God is at home in us, the Holy Spirit works to teach us and bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said, as verse 26 says. The Holy Spirit does this in accordance with the Word of God, since the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and God's Word is truth. The Holy Spirit never speaks something that is contrary to the Word of God, nor does the Holy Spirit ever add anything to the Word of God. Scripture is sufficient and contains all we need for life and salvation. The Holy Spirit illuminates, reminds us of, and applies Scripture to our minds and hearts. We must believe His Word. Another distinctive aspect of believing His Word that we see in this passage involves the resurrection. Belief is closely tied to the resurrection. Verses 18 through 20 say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus is telling them here that although he will be separated from them, it is not a permanent separation. Although he will die, he will defeat death. Death is that great enemy that separates. But it is not so for those who believe. Those who believe will not be eternally separated from Christ, nor actually from one another. The disciples have this separation anxiety, but Jesus is telling them that he will be with them forever through his Spirit. Without Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the Father, the Spirit would not be sent. Because Jesus did rise again, and then 40 days later ascend to the Father, the Spirit was sent to all believers. The book of Acts, particularly the beginning, reveals how the Holy Spirit initially comes and then is present in all believers as the New Testament church grows throughout the world. At this point in John's gospel, Jesus was preparing his disciples to believe the resurrection when it happened. We too are to believe the resurrection. Verses 28 and 29 say, You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus did go away, but he returned to his disciples initially through his resurrected body. Then he returned to them and us forever through his Spirit. All this was according to the Father's will, who Jesus says is greater here in terms of the Father's role of sending and authority, not in terms of being. We know this is the case because each person of the Trinity is equal in terms of being or essence, though different in terms of role. Jesus told them these things beforehand so that they would believe. We too are to believe the word, his truth, and by doing so receive God's home within us, which is the Holy Spirit. Since believing is an indispensable part of God being at home within us through His Spirit, we have to ask, do you believe? Do we believe? Do you take God at His word? Do you believe all of His word? 
or only some of it? Do you believe and apply only those parts that don't require too much of you, or even the parts that require great sacrifice? Do you believe that Jesus rose again in the flesh and then ascended to the Father? Today, there are increasingly more who claim the name Christian, um, who no longer fully believe God as he's revealed in the Bible because they don't trust all of his word. I've even had some friends, even within the last year or so, that no longer trust and believe God's word at certain aspects when it contradicts ideas that are popular in our culture. This has been very hard for me and very sad. Since they've rejected God's word in one area, I can't see how it will be long until they are doubting God's word on things even more central to the gospel, like the resurrection. God's word is truth. We must believe this, or eventually our faith will soon be left with no legs on which to stand. So do you believe God? Do you believe his word? Even the hard things of his word. So we have first seen that God creates his home in us through the Holy Spirit through belief. Next, we see that God creates his home in us now through love and obedience. Verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, Jesus says in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then immediately following Judas, not Iscariot, basically asks, how will you manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? Essentially, how will we see you and know you, but the world will not? Jesus' answer is that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This verse is in this passage really the linchpin between love and obedience and the Holy Spirit. Jesus manifests himself through the Holy Spirit to those who love and obey him, but he does not do so to the world. Jesus clearly emphasizes three times in this passage the importance of love and obedience. Throughout Scripture, repetition is a way of emphasizing the importance of something, and we know that Jesus is doing that here. So he's saying, if you want God to have his home in you, love and obedience are very, very important. Notice that he doesn't just say love, and he doesn't just say obedience. He says love and obedience. He doesn't just say obedience because God wants our hearts. It's possible to obey and our hearts still be far from God. That doesn't please and glorify God. He doesn't just say love because without obedience to God, our love toward him has no definition. Love without obedience is intangible. It's impossible to identify. The Holy Spirit makes his home in us through love and obedience. Although they can't be separated, love comes first. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Love is to lead obedience. Love is to create obedience. So we know that we must have love for God, but how do we get it? We know from the scriptures that love for God is a work of God. By nature, no one has love for God, but instead we have been his enemies, as Romans 5.10 says. Colossians 1.21 describes us as having been hostile in mind. 
before we come to Christ, we're not in some neutral state. We are hostile in mind. We're his enemies. Even the cutest, tiny baby, like our Karis, eight weeks old, who is the cutest, of course. I'm not biased at all. Um, She's just eight weeks old. She's not neutral. Sometimes it can be hard for us to wrap our mind around that, but she's not. Looks can be deceiving. She's God's enemy. She was born in sin. And we don't see this as clearly now, but soon enough, some of her first words will be no when she's asked to obey and mine when required to share. So it becomes very clear. The love that we have for God is initiated by God through his love for us. Romans 5.8 says that, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In love, God chose us. He so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. 1 John four nineteen says, We love because he first loved us. This love is initiated in us by God, that we might come to share in the love of the Trinity which has existed from eternity past. He created us because he wanted to graciously give his love to us and for us to share in it. God has made us in his image, capable of receiving his love and expressing love back to God. So if the Holy Spirit is to be at home in us, we are to have this love. But how can love be seen? How can it be proven? If I say I love my wife, but I forget her birthday, never write her notes, or never give her flowers, or initiate dates with her, or intentionally seek to serve her, wouldn't she have the right to question my love? Absolutely. Love always requires action. But of course, there's a difference in my love towards my wife and my love towards God. Since God is my creator, and sovereign authority, I'm obligated to not only take action in my love toward him, but to obey his every word. Love for God that is accompanied by obedience displays that I know who God really is. He is holy, righteous, and sovereign. He is my father and friend, but he is also not to be trifled with. His commands are serious, and we take them lightly to our own destruction. Obedience is the path of life. Disobedience brings death and separation from God. We see this throughout Scripture, starting in the garden. As Adam and Eve obeyed, they had complete life, which is unbroken and unhindered fellowship with God. Disobedience brought death and separation. The people of Israel were redeemed by God and blessed with His presence. But, as you likely know, they continually went astray. Their disobedience caused them separation from God and brought destruction. We too, all of us should be able to testify that in our own lives too, when when we have disobeyed and gone our own way, that it has brought nothing but pain and death and destruction into our lives. We obey not because we earn God's favor by obeying, but because we experience fellowship with God through obedience. His home is made in us as we love and obey. God's desire is to dwell in us, but he won't share his rightful space in us with sin. He's holy. 
His home is to be inside us, our lives cannot be ones of, of willful, unrepentant sin. Let's consider this. If we're having a get-together at our house, we'll pick up and clean in preparation for the get-together, won't we? We'll hopefully be motivated to get our house in order, not because we feel like we have to impress others, but because we want to honor our guests. We want them to enjoy their time in our house. We want them to feel comfortable. We want them to desire to return. How much more should we desire to honor the living God who would inhabit our souls by there being order in our innermost parts? If we say we love him and that he is welcome, but we don't obey him, it's as if we've invited guests over and there is no food prepared the refrigerator is empty, the trash cans are overflowing, our kids are filthy from playing outside, which is often the case, but they take baths, so that's good, and things are scattered all over the floor. Have we honored those guests? Have we made them feel welcome if when they come over, that's the way our house is? Do we love and honor Christ if our life is a mess from disobedience? So I ask, what does the inside of your house, your soul, look like? What about the closets? What about the drawers? What about under the rugs? God's desire is to dwell in us. Is what is in you a place appropriate for the perfectly holy and righteous creator God? We cannot love God and then not obey him. Now, it could sound like I'm preaching a works righteousness here, that we have to clean ourselves up before coming to God. That's not what I'm saying at all, so please don't misunderstand me. What I am saying is that one who has come to God will be growing in holiness through obedience. His innermost parts will be changed by Christ, beginning at salvation, and he will progress in Christ's likeness from there. The good news of grace to us is that God supplies that which he requires. He requires that we love and obey, that we be holy And he provides that which he requires. The great church father, St. Augustine of the 4th century, prayed, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. God commands us to love and obey, and he provides our love and obedience through his spirit working in us. Our will is still involved. We aren't robots. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 really sheds light on this idea. Paul instructs the Philippian believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there's some effort involved, there's some responsibility. But then he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He tells them, work out and God is working in you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, Jesus takes our unrighteousness and receives the wrath of God that our sins deserve. But he doesn't stop just there. We can be thankful because we need more than some state of neutrality to be accepted in God's sight. Jesus transfers to us his perfect righteousness his record of perfect obedience. In God's sight, we're clothed with Jesus' righteousness and accepted because of his righteousness alone. 
It is out of his righteousness given to us that we obey. The question is, do you love God? It's easy to say we love God, and love is often a pretty cheap word these days. We might say we love our new phone, we love our job, we love coffee, we love basketball. As I said before, love is defined by action. If you say you love God, but there's no evidence in your life, you don't really love Him. If your time, money, gifts, and resources aren't directed toward God's glory, toward enjoying God, and seeking to point others towards fellowship with God, then you don't really love God. Some here today might say, you're right, I don't really love God. If that's you, I hope the next question you have is, how can that be changed? How can I truly love God? Confess to God that you have made other things your highest treasure. Ask Him to forgive you and to change your heart, that your greatest affections would be for Him alone. Some could say, but I, I do love God, I just, I just can't obey well, according to this passage, that's not really a possibility. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. And again, he said that three times in this passage, and the rest of Scripture confirms the same thing. Believers who love God will still sin. There might be a period or season of disobedience, but it cannot last indefinitely. The believer's life is not characterized by perfect obedience, but rather striving for obedience with the pattern of humble repentance and faith when we fail to do what He requires. He requires our love and obedience. Ask that He would give it to you. I believe He will be delighted to hear that prayer and He will honor it. This passage has shown that our true home for which we are made can be restored to us. We were made for unbroken fellowship and a relationship of love received and given back to God. Our true home for which we yearn can be restored to us, and this is good news. If we believe, love, and obey, it will be restored to us. God is preparing a place for us in our eternal dwelling with Him. But the comfort that God lovingly provides us goes far, far beyond something that is merely future, as great as that may be. Heaven has broken and continues to break into earth. Man has become the dwelling place of God through the outpouring of His Spirit. This has happened and continues to happen through belief in Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. His dwelling in us is initiated by belief, but it is confirmed and sustained through love and obedience. It was God's intention at the outset before He even created that our dwelling place would be with him. Sin, Satan, and death brought frustration to his plan, but in Christ these are overcome. That God would dwell with us and in us was the promise of the new covenant made throughout the Old Testament scriptures. One of those many places is in Ezekiel 37, read earlier in the service. Verse 27 of that chapter, the Lord says, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Christ's kingdom has begun to be established on earth through his rule and reign in our hearts, and he is at home in us through the Holy Spirit. Sorry, as he is at home 
in us through the Holy Spirit. It's His desire that the healing He brings inside of us would manifest itself in our physical homes as well. We've all experienced pain and brokenness to some degree in our homes. As we are restored to our true home, which is God's presence, He has brought and will continue to bring healing to our physical homes. The pain, strife, loneliness, instability, or infidelity that many of us have experienced is, praise God, not the end of the story. Instead of pain, we have a Savior who bore our pain. Instead of strife, we have a Savior who is Himself the Prince of Peace and gives us His peace. Instead of loneliness, we have a Savior who bore our loneliness as He was separated from His Father on the cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of instability or infidelity, we have a Savior, our groom, who is faithful and true and can be counted on even when others cannot. We have a Savior who more than fulfills all our longings for home in His person and work. Christ brings hope and healing now and forevermore. Home, which is God's presence with us and in us, is restored to us. It is restored to us because God's Spirit comes to reside within us as we believe, as we love and obey. So by God's help, let us believe, let us love, and let us obey. Let's pray. God, how good you are, how we rejoice in you for the good news of the gospel, that the kingdom of God has broken into this earth through Jesus, your son. And that though you have resurrected and ascended, though you're physically not present with us, you are present with us through your spirit and you reside in us, comforting us, giving us hope, transforming us, teaching us, helping us to remember your word, convicting us of sin. Lord, we rejoice and we praise you that though you are a great God, you are holy and righteous, you are with us. You are able to be with us because you give us your righteousness. You help us to love and obey and to change us inside so that our, our innermost parts are a place that you would delight to dwell. Lord, we know we still sin. We do disobey. But Lord, help our pattern to be one of obedience. A pattern with obedience, but also repentance and faith, Lord. That when we obey, we say all glory to God, because it's you working in us. Lord, help us to believe your word. Lord, help us to not be carried away by the spirit of the times, where your word is under attack. Lord, we know that it is truth. Pray that you would sanctify us in your truth. Lord, we praise you that we can share in the perfect love of the Creator, Human love without your intervention is so marred and messed up. But you bring us to yourself in Christ. You loved us first so that we would love you, be in relationship and fellowship with you. We 
praise you for this marvelous truth, and I pray that all in this room would not take it for granted, Lord, but they would, they would strive after you, after a relationship of love with you, of reading your word, of walking in step with your spirit, of prayer, of worship. Lord, and that as we do this, as you continue to transform this body and your universal church to be a people for your own possession, Lord, that your kingdom would come more fully to this earth, Lord, as people see us and they see that we've been changed by your grace. They would see how we love one another. As you ordered your disciples to love one another, that the world would know that we are your disciples. Father, Holy Spirit, and Son, you are good. Thank you for the love that you invite us to share. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to leave us with this from 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. So go receive the love of the Father, believe, return to him in love and obedience, and that the world would see us, the bride of Christ, purified to be people for his own possession, that he would draw all tribes and tongues to himself, and that he would use us in that process. So go, you are sent.